0: Welcome to uh, episode 12 of uh, Satellite 664. I'm uh, one of your two co-hosts, Kaz Tagian, and as always I'm joined by uh, Mr. Steve Loopy Newhouse in Romford, Essex. Good day to you, sir.
1: Uh, well, good afternoon. but um, well, you've had your day, I'm just starting mine. Uh, episode 12 of hopefully many more. Yes. How are
0: you,
1: how are you coping with lockdown, mate? Um, I'm kind of used to it. I mean, I, it not being able to go out too far, not without a walking stick. I, I do tend to spend a lot of time indoors, so this is uh, this is normality, yeah, or some, so, some kind of normality.
0: Yeah, it's a very different world to that which we're used to. Um, it's it's astounding how. So many things that you took for granted before, whether it's uh, eating dinner at a restaurant or um, going to the, the cinemas or going to a concert, has just completely transformed overnight. Everything that we were used to has completely transformed overnight and we are living under such restrictions. You know, uh, I don't know about you, but we, we're restricted to public gatherings under two people. Uh, you need to have a valid reason as to why you're travelling, otherwise there's quite hefty fines if the police pull you over. Uh, You know, and I can't believe only three, four weeks ago, it was a totally different existence for a lot of us.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've been in actual lockdown for uh, just on two weeks now. Um, It's... uh, and also the M40 North I mean, there's still a lot of contra- controversy about that. You know, who's or oh, like, the social distancing thing? Uh, you know, there, there was a post that I put up recently on my Facebook page. You know, uh, Dickie Bell, Maiden's old stage manager, um, complaining about you know joggers running past him like you know, and not sort of keeping that distance. And you know, it, 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 I actually turned out at the time and thought that um, you know, look, I know Dickie's sense of email was was phenomenal. You know, the, the guy was one really, really funny guy. And it wouldn't have surprised me if he'd set the whole thing up. But uh, it, it, the, uh, the local press in Kent sort of got a hold of this story. And uh, you know, all of was sudden Dickie's back in the headlines after all these years. <laughs> it's, it's great. <laughs> uh,
0: for those who don't know, uh, Dickie Bell was the uh, tour manager for Maiden, uh Right through the eighties and up until I believe two thousand nine, when he retired after the Somewhere Back in Time tour.
1: Um, uh, it was after um, uh, Flight Six Six Six. Yes, he yes. Was on, on the video. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that was a Somewhere Back in Time tour, and um, yes, yeah. yeah. He uh, he <coughs> he was pulled up for being out in public, and um, I, I think he gave the journalists a, a good dressing down, didn't he?
1: <laughs> yeah, in true, true Dicky Bell style. Yeah. In true Dicky Bell style.
0: But good look, man. Um, look, in, I mean, it, it is a very difficult time for a lot of people. A lot of people are doing it tough uh, on many different levels. And that's the beauty of doing this show. We, we are going to just forget about all that. And we're going to go back tonight to... Uh, A wonderful period of
1: 1986 87. The it's a a, a, do do that bit, go back in time. (laughs) You look look
0: like Cindy uh, Cindy Lauper or someone, one of a video clip. Oh, really?
1: With a beard, (laughs) Cindy Lauper with a beard.
0: (laughs) But no, we're gonna look, we're gonna go back to somewhere in time, somewhere on tour era 86 87. A, uh, a wonderful, wonderful period in time. Uh, you know, great memories from the era myself. It's actually my favourite era of the band. Um, my favourite album. Favourite tour. Unfortunately, I didn't get to see it because... Ah. I no, thank you, Loopy. Uh, ah, 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 ah. Well, I remember, I, remember, I remember clearly late 1986, um, the, it was announced that they would be visiting our shores in may of 1987 so and i do remember the conversations at the time that you know me and my my buddies were all going to go to the show uh lo and behold may 1987 came and uh there was no tour and back in those days there was no internet the news traveled a lot slower and we only found out about the tour being finished in uh, i think hit parade magazine a couple of months later when they played the shows in japan and That was it. So, so
1: it's, yeah, sadly, it's a sore point with me. I didn't get to see it. Well, and here we are 34 years later, in the same scenario.
0: How so, mate?
1: Well, you're not going to get the tour this year, but at least you now know about it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, in this age of uh, internet and social media, news travels very, very, very fast. And the only difference is... I've seen the Legacy of the Beast tour a number of times now, so uh, uh, (laughs) so it's a slightly different issue. But um, no, we're going to go back to that uh, wonderful era, uh, great memories for all of us, and um, speak about the tour. We're not going to speak about the album tonight, we're going to speak about the tour and tell the story of the tour through the merchandise. And um, why don't we kick it off with a friend of the show, Rasmus from uh, Denmark showcasing uh, some of the more uh, interesting collectibles from the 1980s.
2: Hello guys, it's Rasmus from Denmark. I'm here to talk a little about the uh, merchandise and collectibles from the Somewhere in Time era with Iron Maiden. Uh, as you can see, I brought out some of the cool stuff and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about it, okay? First of all, I would like to talk a little bit about the famous uh, Somewhere in Time artwork that uh, the Ricks did for Iron Maiden. Everybody knows the album cover. It's one of I most famous album covers. Because there's so much stuff going on in that uh, artwork. I know every fan likes to sit with that. Uh, Album cover just to find all the different small bits and pieces that's hidden inside that artwork, and I still love just sitting with the album cover looking at it. Uh, you can go online, find tons of info about the hidden stuff in that uh, painting. And uh, if you have not done it already, I uh, really uh, want you to go there and take a look at that because it's super funny. Some of the stuff that the great put into that painting, uh, a lot of stuff is not allowed actually to come on the final outcome of the album cover. He had a lot of ideas, and I actually have a sketch drawing of uh, how it was supposed to be. Here you can see uh, one of the first drafts uh, the Riggs did for, for the Summer in Time album cover, and uh, Eddie had long hair, he had a t-shirt and trousers on. He was not a cyborg at all. Later they changed that. Uh, you can see spaceships over here from famous uh, movies like uh, Star Wars and Star Trek that was later deleted from the, from the piece because uh, of trademark reasons, so uh, they couldn't do that. Another fun uh, small thing in the, the artwork is uh, if you look in the corner on the album cover, the street name is actually Acacia Avenue uh, from the famous main song, but uh, on the test, it was actually Uggel Street, and uh, most of you have no idea what Uggel Street is, and when I first saw it, I have no idea, but uh, then one day I got this uh, cool invite for uh, a party, Maiden did, uh, a listening party for the album cover. And uh, when I looked at that, I could see that I Maiden management were actually located in London at Google Street. So just a fun little thing. And uh, also for you collectors out there who want to try to find some uh, cool stuff, uh, the invite for uh, some time. Very cool piece. Just here at last, I wanted to talk about a little fun thing, Uh, the album cover. This is, uh, by the way, an LP cover from Argentina, fun because the colors are different and the text time is uh, in uh, different writings, so also fun for the collectors to try and fight those things. Um, But I'm going to talk a little bit about the cyborg hand. Down in the corner you have uh, Eddie has killed some cyborg, and you can see his uh, hand. Is here uh, a fun thing about that hand is actually the Greeks put that in in a lot of different eye artworks so uh, here's a task for you guys to try and find as many uh, I maiden uh, covers singles and Lps where that hand is I will uh, start by telling you it's uh, in the stranger in a strange land picture it's also there and uh, you will also see it on the trooper in the foreground is uh, this hand. Uh, so uh, let's see how many you can find. I will uh, help you a little bit. there's over Tim. Thank you.
0: Awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. Thank you, Rasmus Be- Cheers, Res. Nice one. Yeah, I love just love that collection. I really do. All right, let's uh, let's kick it off somewhere in somewhere on tour. Uh, 151 shows uh, from uh, September 1986 right up until May uh, May 1987, uh, basically spanning three continents, so Europe, North America, uh, Japan, and finishing off in Japan on May 21st. The set list on those shows was, um, I think, amongst one of the best. I mean, Maiden being Maiden, they always represent the new album very, very well. And out of the eight songs on that album, uh, they they represented five out of the eight songs. And on one of the shows, they actually did six out of the eight. So that was in um, the first show of the tour in Belgrade, Yugoslavia, which is now Serbia. They played the long, Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. And that was the only show that that song was played at. That was never to be played again. Um, I guess, having listened to it on sort of the, the old bootleg, it. I don't think it translated well to a live setting, because uh, the Summer in Time album was very much, you know, bass synths, guitar synthesizers, and uh, while some of the songs like Wasted Years and Heaven Can Wait work remarkably well. Some of the other songs like Loneliness for the Long Distance Runner, obviously, Sea of Madness, uh, even the opening track Caught Somewhere in Time, didn't quite translate as well as they should have, and I think, um, interestingly enough, that's probably why they haven't played it since then, and yet Wasted Years and Heaven Can Wait have stood the test of time.
1: Well, yeah... Um... There could be multiple reasons why um why they haven't used those songs like going back to that that one particular instance in belgrade it could have been a case of like you know they've, they've had a bad response after, or did one they just... show,
0: after one show they dropped that song
1: yeah yeah maybe michael kenny's since were out of, out of tune or uh, who knows um but yeah, over, over the years, I mean, you can understand why certain things get dropped. Um, oh, when was the last time they played? Um, I was going to say Rothschild, but they played that all a bloody time. Um, Prowler. Prowler. Uh,
0: Sanctuary. You know. 2005, I believe.
1: Prowler was Another
0: life. 2005.
1: Yeah. another life. Yeah. Yeah, a, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we could probably go back and list a lot of stuff off the first two albums that they don't don't play anymore.
0: Well, they did that on the early days tour. That was the whole purpose of the early days tour. And I remember uh, Bruce actually said it, this might be the last time we ever play these things, these songs. So yeah. it may have been the same issue, same deal with the, those Somewhere in Time songs where we heard... Um, You know, we heard them for the first and
1: last time. The thing is, we actually brought this up in an earlier episode about the the, the fact that they'd done um, up to the 88. But they have never done anything from 88 to present. Just like completely forgetting about everything pre-88. That would be interesting. Yeah,
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I mean, I would love to see this album, the Summer in Time album, represented. I know a lot of fans would love to see this album represented, but you get the impression it's not the band's favourite album. I know Bruce, he wrote a lot of songs, a lot of them were folksy songs, and clearly they were never going to make it, and Martin Birch was never going to let some of those acoustic-based songs ever make it on the album. And... Um, that's why a lot of his songs were left off, whereas Adrian had you know a, lot, a very strong representation on the album with three out of the eight. Um, yeah. So it was an interesting uh, impasse at where the band was at that time. Uh, I remember reading a lot of the uh, magazine articles at that time. They described the summer the summer on tour as a, a very stress-free, very, um, very enjoyable uh, tour. They had a, a much bigger stage space to run around in and play in. And you'd think that they had um, recovered from the burnout from 84, 85 from the world S- world slavery tour, which is very well documented.
1: I mean, but they'd also learned from that tour what they wanted and what they didn't want. Yeah, you know, they've now gone to the bigger stage. So they're now playing arenas everywhere, stadiums even. And uh, they, you know, they obviously realise that that's where they wanted to be. You know, yeah. you know no longer going back to the places like Hammersmith Odeon or Brixton Academy. You know, it's, it's progression, I suppose. You know, and again, considering the band had only been on the road for eight years at that point. It's, uh, well, you not know, eight years. It's seven.
0: Yeah. Now out of the two of us
1: you saw the tour in 86 uh, you well, What I yeah basically all I saw was uh, the six shows they did at Hammersmith Only the six shows and how many did you see cast? guys <laughs> thank you Luke.
0: thank you this is
1: uh, <laughs> this is going to run
0: throughout the episode guys so you know I'm,
1: I'm going to hold my hands up now and say that was the last that was the last time, right? Until next time. <laughs> but yeah, I, mean, I, only, I only saw the shows at um, at Hammersmith. Um uh because of the company I work for, Stage Miracles. Um, we we were supplied by promoters. You know, promoters would call our office and say, "Right, I'm going to need 20 people at this time, that venue," and we'd be there. And um, I was either the crew boss in charge of that that crew, or uh, I went down as a liaison, and uh, it was my job to sort of make sure that things between the maiden crew and the local stage crew went smoothly. And, you know, it, I mean it, it's, um, I think it's jobs for the boys. You know, and if they can get somebody else paid that didn't really have to be there, that's that's what they used to do, and because I I knew the guys. I mean, not just the band, but I also knew most of the crew as well. <clears throat> it was the obvious thing to do. I mean, basically every time Maiden played in, in London, I was there. Right up until 1995 uh, when I actually left. After that, you know, there was a, a period when I didn't know what the band were doing up until the sort of late 2010s, you know, well, the early 2010s. Um, but, yeah, so I was there for all, all six shows uh, working with the local crew. Um, the first day was a loading that started at 7am. Uh, um, it was only like four trucks, uh, but Dickie Bell being Dickie Bell, the, the whole thing was very well organised. They'd unload one truck, so that would be the lighting equipment and the, um, the, like the rigging. All the motors would be pulled up into the air, the rigging was, was attached, to the lighting rig was attached to the motors, that would go up in the air. Then the PA would come in, that would be built. And at the same time the PA was coming in, the back line set, or the back stage set would come in and that was being built. And then the back line was the last thing to come in. Um, the flooring was laid down. And it, it, it was well organized. And I mean, we, we started at seven and I think it, we, we managed to lay off half of our crew by 1 p.m. because everything was done.
0: Now, other than being hometown, gigs, the, that week at Hammersmith, um, which in itself is is phenomenal uh, effort to sell out six shows in a week in the one venue, but there's a couple of notable things, uh, notable incidents uh, or events rather occurred. The very first day when you guys loaded in on the 3rd of November was um, the Jim Will Fix It.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Now, can, can you tell us about Jim Will Fix It? What was it? What was, that? what was the show about? And what oh, actually
1: Jim, transpired? Jim it was uh, was uh, a lovely man. Lovely man, Jimmy Savile. We all know that name. Um, not, yeah, basically, uh, people not for the would right write,
0: reasons. Not for the right reasons. Unfortunately, the bugger got away with it.
1: Um, bugger. <laughs> I can't remember I use that. Um, basically, people like kids would write in and ask Jim to help them out, um, doing something for them. You know, so um, basically, he would make dreams come true. And on this particular occasion, a young lad called uh, Dom Lawson, Dominic Lawson, um, he uh, he contacted Jim and asked if he could be a roadie for Iron Maiden for the day. And so the cameras came down, they just happened to, to choose that day, November the third day of the loading which is probably one of the busiest times. They could have chosen any other time. But from a certain time, you know that the band are going to be there. Um, During the rest of the week, the band didn't turn up so early. They didn't need the sound check because everything was done by Doug on the first day. So it seemed obvious that if they were going to do something like that, then loading day was the day to do it. So the filming started um, early afternoon. And, um, One of my all favourite soundtrack songs, Flash from Queen, from the Flash Gordon soundtrack. I'd i like not to sort of to take much notice of what was going on. We we'd had cameras in the audience before, you know. We, we knew what it was all about, and we we'd done things with Tears fears, uh, of Fear's all manner of stuff that we'd we'd been filmed doing. Um, but on this particular occasion, uh Don was uh, was taken into. um the production office and told, like, how you know things worked, and we came out on stage and sort of generally helped out, um, um, especially up like, with the backline. Like, like, Bill and um, I can't remember who was working on the other side, but uh, Billy Bartley um, was doing the guitars with Dave. and Bill would say to him, Right, right, right we're going to put that there. So, don would help him put that there, and then we'd, we're going to do this and we're going to put that there. And, and again, like, Dom would help him out, it was normally. That would be down to one of the stage hands to do that, but we're not like the Americans. You know, you, you, over in the UK, we're hands-on. You know, we we don't do. Uh, we're not like, as I said, we're not like the Americans where you can't touch anything unless your union rep says so. You know, it, it, I never understood that. Um, so yeah, basically, Don was there like replacing one of uh, one of our lads who probably went off to the pub. Who knows? <laughs> um, but yeah, as I said, like, uh, they were sort of following Dom around with the cameras and uh, Dom sort of managed to sit behind the drum kit with uh, Nico and uh, Nico was showing him how to uh, tune the drums and he'd say, right, well, go around and um, but they were sort of doing the sound check, and then Dougie Hall out front would go, no, that sounds like crap or yeah, that's fine. Um, and then it came to uh, a bit of downtime. Everybody used to have their dinner um, around about... Um, it was used to sort of, sort of 5, 6 o'clock in the evening, late afternoon and evening. And um, they needed people to sit around the dining table so they could film Dom eating his dinner. And um, so you got... Uh, we're going around the table like had yeah, Dominic at one end of the table, and sitting directly opposite the other end of the table was Pyro Pete, and I've really got to find out what happened to that guy. I've no idea what happened to him. And then um, to Dominic's left was uh, Dave Lights. Sitting next to Dave Lights was um Chris Lang. He was one of the uh, lighting crew, but he was also a spotlight operator. And then on the other side of Dom, to Dom's right was Billy Barkley who Dom had actually sort of been helping out, and myself. I needed me to go in there just to make the numbers up, full table, make it look like it was really busy. <coughs> and... Um, so Dominic had this plate of food put in front of me, man, boy, he really touched it, it looked like it was roast beef, uh, no, roast lamb, uh, veg, you know, potatoes and veg. And uh, I think either the rest had already eaten or were due to eat later, but I was asked to sort of be there and not touch a thing. I didn't have a dinner book in front of me. Um, I didn't even. I wasn't even offered a drink. Yeah, it, was, it was ridiculous. If you wanted your own drink, yeah, sort of get up and sort of do it yourself. Um, you weren't entitled to soft drinks because that was the band or crew. So if you wanted a soft drink, you had to go to the shop round the corner and buy your own. Um, yeah, trust me, that's that's the way it was, but. Um, yeah, so they, they had. I think we were actually in there for about 20 25 minutes being filmed, you know, where like uh, Billy was talking to Dom and you know, trying to get his reaction while he was stuffing his face. Um, and there is a, a funny moment when uh, Billy started like passing him sauces, you know, brown sauce. Ketchup, mint sauce, and then another bottle of ketchup, and then another bottle of brown sauce. You know, Dominic, all of a sudden, he's got his plate, and he was just now surrounded by a sort of wall of bottles. It was, <laughs> it was funny. Um, after that, um, I'm not really sure what happened to Dominic. I, I seem to remember he, he got introduced by Bruce when the band were on stage, but. I an not know. I've
0: no idea. Yeah, there's a well. That's all on YouTube. If you, uh, oh,
1: is you know, it right? Okay.
0: Yeah. There's, there's in fact there's a whole I think 10 minute uh, video of basically a summary of everything you just said um, on a YouTube video, and it's the only known live footage of the Hammersmith shows, um, which is incredible. Uh, but yeah, it, it shows basically everything from loading. To that dinner table scene that you're just talking about, to when uh, Bruce called him on stage and said something to the effect of "This is Dominic Lawson, he's 14 years old, and he needs a girlfriend," or something, something uh, <laughs> yeah, something yeah, like that. Um, you know. So, <laughs> but now also too the the at the end of the week, so on the sixth and final show uh, before the which was the end of the European tour that was a charity show and that was um, raising money for an organisation called the NSPCC. Now, what? who were the NSPCC, Loopy? Uh,
1: the NSPCC is um, it's the uh, National Society for the Protection of Cruelty to Children or Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Um, I don't know when they was set up. I mean, I don't remember um, Esther Ransom doing a program called That's Life. So talking about the NSBCC, you're talking back in the 70s. So they've been around for quite a while. Um, But yeah, yeah, we we touched on this briefly uh, before we actually went on here. And to be honest, I don't remember anything about that particular show. I've got nothing in my diary that, that even mentions it. And yeah, I did all six shows, and I, I, I don't know.
0: So that. All no, I know is that. So that was the late afternoon show. It started. I think the show started at five pm or six pm.
1: I was, did. I mean, go uh, back to my trusted diary of that time. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, uh, what he actually says here is um, Iron Maiden, 1pm reset, uh, loadout, started at 6.45pm and finished at midnight. So, does that mean they did an earlier show and then we were done by midnight and everybody went home? I'm
0: not sure. I I, I can't remember. My understanding is they started late afternoon, so normally they'd start at 9 o'clock or whatever. 9 p.m. Yeah,
1: I like thirty usually. Yeah, I yeah. started
0: a, a few hours earlier than that, um, uh, and then I think it was off to the end of the end of the tour party. But um, and we're showing I there. there. I was there. You were there. I was there. Yes, you were. <laughs> That's you know, every time you make me jealous about this sh- tour. Oh I mean, uh, yeah sorry, mate. Sorry
1: we're we're going to ring a bell.
0: We're going to ring a bell. We're going to ring a bell. or something <laughs> yeah. Have you got a bell on your end? Oh.
1: Yeah, no, so.
0: no. There you go. There you go. We, you, it's, oh, all it's all set up. It's all set. Is that glass going to get a thumping? Is it tonight? Um, no. So so, and, and there was a special T-shirt made for that show, um, which we're we're showing now, um, which was uh, unique to that show only. It was an event shirt. Um, I yeah, guess which. Don't, don't remember that shirt at so. all. Yeah, which that's highlighted weird. the very nature of the, uh, uh, of the two. Of, of, sorry, of what they were trying to achieve during that show
1: with the, uh, the, the, the beast. Oh. <laughs> the nature of the beast. Nature of the ah, beast. Ah, see, see, got to get it in there. And that's it. But, but all in all, the
0: European and, um, uh, UK tour was, was quite uneventful, um, other than, other than Bruce complaining about diarrhea during the Eastern European shows, the, um, the other the real only hiccup they had was uh, in October where Bruce got the flu, he was quite sick. Um, he became unwell uh, during the two Sheffield shows and and actually played the second Sheffield show, sick as a dog, um, and which is actually on 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 video that show. so the the show after that at Gomont Hall in uh, Ipswich was cancelled. And that's a famous sort of event because um, the, the the fan club made available a, a very exclusive signed promo poster of Wasted Years to all the concert girls and we're showing that now here, um, accompanied I... by a letter from Keith uh, from Keith Wilford. and that has become one of arguably one of the most sought-after
1: collectibles. In in basically the world of Iron Maiden. Right, so that that was that was the out just like the, the, the ticket payers, the, the ticket buyers. Correct. So you're talking go moms around about two thousand two hundred. Yes. So say say so there might have been a few spare, call it two thousand five hundred. It's no wonder that's so sought after. You think about the millions of fans there are now, and there's only two thousand five hundred of that particular poster made. Yeah, that's actually, phenomenal.
0: It? Well, and, and we don't know how many of them are surviving, as in how many copies of that post are actually surviving. I mean, I only know personally, I only know two or three people that actually own one, and I'm one of them.
1: Uh, so, well, okay, I mean, that's a classic. You know, leave your comments here. If, you know, if there's anybody out there that has got one of these and would like to show us a picture of it, leave your comment below or, or put it on our Facebook page.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Were you? Did you have a ticket to see them at Gomont Hall in Ipswich? Um, yeah. Well, show us yeah. Show us your ticket. Show your, your
1: tickets. Get your tickets out. Get your tickets but out. We're
0: going to show well, all six of your working passes from yeah, the okay. from the Hammersmith shows. So, now let's um let's tell some more stories. now. It was um as I said, Europe, UK were very uneventful. And then they crossed the pond and went uh, to North America, to the United States. And um, some, some some quite interesting merchandise came out of that leg of the tour. Uh, in the World Slavery Tour, they got into the habit or the practice of <clears throat> producing event shirts and in particular showing Eddie very much... Uh, with with famous landmarks, so for San Francisco, it was with the, the pictured with the uh, Golden Gate Bridge, etc. For the somewhere on tour era in '87, those certain specific North American shows, they showed Eddie very much integrated and assimilated in the local culture. And here are some examples of this. So for the New York City. Uh, or the New York area concerts, where they played the Madison Square Garden and um, the Meadowlands Arena. They've they basically showed Eddie dressed up in a New York Giants football kit, football jersey, um, and uh, again, it was uh, it was an example of Eddie being part of the environment, part of that local scene of where the band was playing. But the, also, too, the, the, that shirt also tells some other stories. Uh, there's a very famous incident in um, in uh, Madison Square Garden where somebody threw a, a firecracker or an M-80 firecracker up on the stage. And um, and Bruce was completely stunned. So it was during "Rome of the Ancient Mariner. The band kept on playing because... And this is on YouTube. You can actually see the clip. The rest of the boys are sort of towards the back of the stage and um, they're just playing along. Bruce was at the front of the stage and you can see he was stunned and he basically said, you know, who the F threw that and kind of walked over to the back of the stage and completely stopped singing, completely stopped singing. Now, whether he wanted to walk off or um, or he was just sort of stunned with a shock of it, I think maybe a combination of the two. But uh, never understood why people threw stuff on stage.
1: Or why they even take these things to, to a geek. If you're going to take it, then it's in your head to throw it. So, what kind of mentality is that? Thank God it doesn't happen anymore. Uh,
0: but in those days.
1: Well, I I guess... security's a little tighter now anyway, isn't it? So, yeah, look, yeah. It post I mean, sort of. When, post... We, when we went to Brooklyn, I mean, me being a smoker. I was allowed to keep my cigarettes, but I took my lighter away and threw it in the bin. You're not even allowed to take a lighter in the place. Yeah.
0: Look, it's we're in the sort of post-9-11 world where security, yeah. and rightfully so, is at a, a much higher level, and it's astounding that in those days, people would take firecrackers and God knows what else, chains and everything else in, into the venues. but... Um, the other incident that, that is quite notorious is at the uh, the, uh, uh, the Meadowlands arena uh, in New Jersey where and this was 30th of March 1987 and there was a, a quite a destructive riot that went on after the show from about 11 p.m. to about 1 a.m uh, after the show there was about 33 youths, Really wired up, God knows what they were on, but they they started a, a quite a large riot, and uh, that was quite big in the media. It made the news, and there's some really interesting things that uh, quotes from public figures, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read something from the mayor, the mayor of uh, of East Rutherford, New Jersey. He said, and I quote. I think they ask for trouble when they book some of these groups because of the type of people that follow these groups. It's, that's us, right? Um, they, yeah. they, in other words, the people who put the put the show on, are, all, are almost a party to this rioting when they book them in the first place. And um, it goes on to say that uh, the, the arena were reconsidering sort of barring groups that perform heavy metal a hard driving rock and roll characterized by screeching vocals thunderous percussion and wailing guitars
1: now what comes to mind quite simply is they've pigeonholed heavy metal as being like a bad thing to have was there a history of riots at heavy metal gigs at the Midlands? Uh, I don't believe so, no. no. No, exactly. So this was a one-off event, and all of a sudden everybody else has been pigeonholed. It, it, it is. They're talking out of their arses, obviously.
0: Look, it, it, I mean, riots and f- trouble, uh, d- I mean, it doesn't really occur in the, in the UK or Europe. Well, certainly not back then. Um, but they did occur in North America. I mean, there's the... Well, the yeah,
1: again, there's 33 people. It's a minority when you've got a, a crowd of approximately 18,000, 33 people. You know, it's a minority. But on the upside, it's publicity. Yeah. Very true. Very true.
0: Very true. Yeah. Very true. But I mean, th- there's also other rights that have happened in in American sh- concerts, namely the uh, uh, Guns N' Roses, there's uh, a uh, famous right there. Uh, Metallica so it's it's not un, unheard of but certainly in Europe and the UK I mean that, that sort of stuff never really went on so I, I, I guess the, the, the venues were a lot smaller too
1: oh, yeah yeah I don't know I mean there was the incidents uh, incident should I say um, of uh, Maiden um, at Donington Oh yeah. when um, Guns N' Roses, yeah, 88, uh, Guns and Roses were on stage, and apparently a young lad lost his life.
0: Yeah, no, we're going to cover but that, this. That wasn't. I mean, that wasn't due to riot. No, no, that was more of was a...
1: just like crowd surge.
0: Crowd surge plus inclement crunch... inclement weather. we we're going to cover that in huge detail when we do the 1988 era when we cover that but um, this was a a little bit different now telling you more about uh, eddie um being at one with his environment the canada canada event shirt is um is is really really cool and it shows eddie as a uh, ice hockey player again ice hockey is arguably the biggest sport in canada canadians are, are crazy about ice hockey and here we see Eddie um, in a kit, again, kitted up in a sporting um, sporting team's uh, jersey. And this is the Edmonton Oilers. Now, the Edmonton Oilers were the champion team that uh, won the championship uh, in uh, Canadian ice hockey in 1987. And I guess one of the, uh, the big famous players was a gentleman called Wayne Gretzky, who um, who, well, look, you and I don't know anything about that because uh, we're not well, we're not from that part of the world and we're not into ice hockey. But uh, again, can you
1: can you just spell his surname for me? G R E T S K Y. Gretzky. So yes. not
0: Gretzky. Yeah.
1: yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And um, again, I guess producing these uh, these shirts. These bits of merchandise were very much appealing to the local, um, uh, to the local fans, and this is, I guess, we can see the the practice of, uh, you know, specific event shirts being being made to this day really do stem from from that era, from that sort of mm. World Slavery Summer on Tour era,
1: and it's yeah. it's been. I- it's been a consistent. I did, I did wonder. I did wonder where it all started. So you just explain that. So yeah, yeah,
0: it all came from here. Um, uh, the um, the Texas event shirt is um, is an amazing shirt, and um, here we see Eddie dressed up as uh, Clint Eastwood on the event shirt. And have a look where they got the idea from. They got it directly ripped from. Um, uh, the image of the of Clint Eastwood in the movie, The High Plains Drifter.
1: That's one of my favourite films.
0: High Plains Drifter.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so I mean, Eddie was Clint Eastwood in uh, Stranger in a Strange Land, and he's Clint Eastwood again on the Texas event shirt. Now, my probably one of my favourite 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 event shirts, maiden shirts ever, which is why I'm actually wearing it tonight, is. Um, the the Florida 1987 shirt. And this has Eddie in a white suit, uh, you know, sort of boat shoes without socks. And he is none other than Don Johnson from Miami uh, Vice. Ed Johnson. Ed Johnson. <laughs> Ed Johnson. <laughs> <Ed> Johnson. <laughs> yes, yeah, so everyone, uh, everyone remembers uh, Miami Vice uh, with uh, Crockett and Tubbs, I think they were called. Yeah. Um I I've mean I, Yeah, well I think I mean look well, I assume our our audience is on the slightly older side like us. So so we would know Miami Vice very well, but in case there's younger fans watching the show, Miami Vice was a, a, a huge hugely popular TV show that ran from 84 to 1990 and um, around 86 87 it really hit its peak and it was about to um, sort of undercover police officers who walked around in immaculate suits and uh, looked like sort of pin-up guys which the girls always liked um, and
1: could you could you imagine Eddie driving around in a speed well he did on, well he, he did
0: because he was Don Johnson he was Don Johnson Don Johnson Ed Johnson, Ed Johnson, yeah, and and you can see on this shirt the uh, the logo, uh, the Iron Maiden logo, is very different. It's the Miami Vice uh, sort of font that they were using. And um, if anybody re- remembers watching the show, Don Johnson's character had a uh, used to keep an alligator on his boat, and um, that alligator's picture, alligator whose name was Elvis, by the way. Is uh, pictured on this shirt, um, and I just think this is one of the coolest shirts ever. I just love it. I just love it. It's, it, it. it typifies, it's, it's, it's different. It's different. It typifies Iron Maiden's sense of humour, and again, it places Eddie in his in that environment, which is, you know, mm. sunshine, blue skies, Miami, beach. You know, oh, women in bikinis, mm-hmm. and yeah. I just love it. I just love it. Um, any comments about Ed Ed
1: Johnson, Loopy? To, to be totally honest, I, I remember oh, remember the program, yeah. but uh, well, didn't know, actually watch it. Don't think fun fun. Fun. I did.
0: Yeah, we can I, never so, it. I never watched it. So I never watched
1: it. It was um, to me. Back so I'll ask you question. No comment.
0: Yeah, it was a show that um, you know, <laughs> it was a show that a lot of the, lot of the uh, <laughs> trendy girls at school used to watch. I, you know, it wasn't wasn't really something that uh, the average maiden fan would, would be really into, I suppose. You
1: know, yeah, girls. I never never went to a mixed school. I, I went to a boys' school. We were the same as Steve and um, uh, and Deano and it was, uh, Phil Collins.
0: Did you guys uh, go to a
1: boys' school? Yeah. Was it a private school or a
0: public
1: school? Public, public boys' school. But we all went to the same school. Steve was a year older than me, and I was a year older than Paul and Phil Connor. But all at the same school at the same time. Wow. And
0: Phil went to Def yep. Steve and Deano went Maiden. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing.
1: Oh,
0: Finishing off now, uh, moving on to California. Now that this this is the California event shirt, a little bit boring. It's um, it's uh, really just the Stranger in a strange land, Eddie in a big circle. I don't think they put a whole lot of thought into this particular shirt. But um, uh, one violent incident that comes to mind on, on the California shows is when the opening act. Uh, was playing. Now, the opening act was called Vinnie Vincent Invasion. Now, Vinnie Vincent was the uh, ex-Kiss guitarist who replaced Ace Frehley, made, made his own solo band, and they opened for Maiden in the early stages of the Summer in Time tour. Now, it was a very unlikely pairing because we're going to show a picture of the Vinnie Vincent Invasion now. And as you can see, they Very, very glammed up, extremely glammed glammed up. Um, not a very
1: appropriate pairing. Yeah, as I say, this this is not an Iron Maiden show, no, (laughs) far from it.
0: Far from it. So, the um, one night during one of the shows, the drummer Bobby Rock uh was doing a drum solo and um, a, a bottle of whiskey basically came hurling from the crowd um, into uh, onto onto the stage and actually hit him in the side and he started bleeding quite profusely. I think number one, but I mean, he's said since then it's probably due to the fact that they had a very glammy image that didn't fit the, the billing between the two bands. But again, it sort of underpins how how far we've come and how... Things have changed that back in those days you could walk into a venue with a bottle, a full bottle of whiskey, drink it, get completely drunk, and then throw the bottle onto the stage and actually hurt someone. Um, yeah,
1: it's 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 mind mind blowing. It, uh, we, we, well, okay, it was a long time ago, but you know nowadays when you think it what what security is like now, Yeah, you know, how do you get into these places with with these things?
0: Lupi, was it in the in in England in the UK? Did any did people used to walk in with? You know our bottles of alcohol into the venue and sort of get drunk in the venue
1: no not that i remember
0: yeah same here i mean i remember back 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 in those days seeing shows i mean, like,
1: most venues had a at a bar yeah or there was a there was a pub really really close in which case people would go to the pub first and then they're going to the venue hit the bar have a few drinks go and see the support band mm-hmm. the support band finishes you got half an hour to go and have another drink and then go back and watch the main band. And that, that's, you know, that was pretty much it. If, if anybody was going to turn up with anything, it was either a poster or an album that they wanted signing on the off chance, and they, you know, they, they'd get to make a band. But no, nah, nah, I really can't think of uh, you know, any sort of alcohol or fireworks or weapons or anything being taken into venues.
0: So why do you think it happened in the in the US more so? than anywhere else or exclusively than anywhere else um, what's your theory Lucy?
1: <laughs> uh theory um,
2: i don't know i really don't know
1: they have a gun law um, nobody else really has a gun law maybe if they think that because they have guns they can do whatever they bloody want i, I don't know
0: yeah. Anyway, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting historical question. Yeah, you know, well, back then, these things used to happen in certain parts of the world, concerts, and never in other parts of the world as concerts.
1: Uh, that's it. Oh, you're saying about the, like the gun law? I mean, it just makes me wonder. Back in those days, how many people actually took guns to concerts?
0: What guns to concerts?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, you know, everybody's walking about with, like a, you know, like a hit gun.
0: That's a question for our American friends to to answer, because I mean, we both come from. Is it allowed? I mean,
1: was it ever allowed? Who knows?
0: Well, well I mean, let's pose the question to our um our American viewers, because that's something completely alien to to you and me. Um, yeah. I mean, both of us live in countries with quite um quite rigid uh, laws with ownership of firearms and I, I mean back in the 80s you just did not you know they were obviously they were legal but you didn't certainly go to shows with them or or any sort of weapons
1: no I'm not, I'm not saying they did go to shows with them i'm just wondering if they did were they allowed to you
0: know
1: answers down below please
0: please Cause, no, please, because we we learn a lot. We learn a lot yeah. by doing this yeah. show. About, us. That's right. And, and, and as I said, we've got a global audience, so so people would know. Very good, and that is it. Somewhere in time, somewhere on tour. Well, well, we haven't done the somewhere in time part of it because, um, oh boy, that's that's a deep, deep, deep analysis of the album that I'd like to do at some point, preferably with somebody who was, you know in the studio or someone who who was there. Um, But that's, in a nutshell, that's the story of the tour. It was a a terrific moment in time. It was sandwiched between the biggest tour that they'd ever done and arguably the the pinnacle of their career, sorry, the pinnacle of the classic period, which was the Seventh Son era. So, actually, Lupe, here's a question. When you define, when people say the classic era of Iron Maiden, what do you classify or uh, consider as the classic years of the band? And remember, we've got uh, 40 years to choose from here.
1: I'll well, classic. I put you, I mean, put you it, on it, the
0: spot with this one, haven't
1: I? Yeah, thanks, mate. Six nil. Um. <laughs> What I did there.
2: Is there a tour um,
1: I've seen... Hang on, ring the bell. you got to ring the bell.
0: Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. 6-0. Is there a tour you've seen... Sorry, that I've seen that you haven't seen? Probably lots. <laughs> I think the only one that comes to well, mind is... I, the don't, t-
1: I don't care. I know you don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, so let's, let's go back to me being put on the spot. Right, the term classic, classic to me means... In the past, mm. but not recent past. We're talking past past. So it would have to be. Um, oh, I would have said like peace of mind. I mean, that, that to me was a classic tour, mm. classic lineup. Yeah, yeah. And when do you think? Or, that- or you can go back before that, like with Deano and and. Um, and Dennis, so yeah, you know, again.
0: Yeah, so you would consider that the classic era, and rightly so. Um, when do you think the classic era
1: ended? Uh, I think when uh, when Adrian left. So, nineteen ninety. Yeah.
0: yeah. So I've got a slightly different uh, slant on this. I think. Um, I think the classic era of the band, and I'm defining classic as um, the era that sort of the fans look on to with, you know, the most fondness. I'd put it starting as a number of the Beast era and actually ending when Bruce left the band. In other words, the entire first phase of Bruce. Starting with a number of the beast, ending with fear of the dark. In other words, it started with a number one album, and funnily enough, it ended with a number one album. Um, and yes, people say that uh, you know, 1990 onwards they were in decline. They actually, they actually weren't. They they were still one of the biggest bands around. They were still making pretty strong music, and they were still commercially very successful. So for me, it started in '82. And it ended in ninety two, I guess. Um, I mean ninety three. They were very much in decline. And um, now I think what we're seeing is the, the what I call the Renaissance sort of period, where the, this sort of post reunion era with Adrian and Bruce now having been back for over twenty years now. I think this is the the, the, the almost like a very much a, re, a Renaissance, a post.
1: Classical yeah, realistic. I, I, I think I have to agree. I mean, seeing them as a, as a six-piece now, it's, um, I mean, when I was working for them, obviously five was, you know, it was always five members. Now, having seen them several times as a, as a six-piece and seeing how well that works and how full their sound is now, I'm trying to remember back to the good old days, it's, it's, it's hard work. Yeah, I mean, there are live albums out there to listen to. There are